Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. We have done dozens of shows on the, quote, housing market here in the Bay Area, and the inevitable conclusion of just about all of those shows has been, for regular people, the housing market is just broken. And the types of mainstream solutions that get mentioned don't seem to be working. So today we take a step back and ask deeper questions about how and why the system has failed through the work of two people pushing their own unusual solutions. One will tell us about a land value tax, a boring title for a fascinating idea, and the other will tell us about an innovative land trust in Oakland, the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Collective. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. So we have a bit of an unusual show for you today. Think of it as a showcase for fascinating ideas for fixing our current urban crisis. The connective thread here is a rethinking of the way the market for property works. Our first guest, Noni Session, runs the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Collective. And even just in the name, there's a different kind of energy. In this age of displacement and large-scale urban change, permanence is not a word we associate with just about anything in the Bay Area. Welcome to Forum, Noni. Hi. So good to have you. Yeah, so good to have you Excited to be here. So, you know, oftentimes in these housing solutions conversations, it kind of starts with, how do we get slash build more affordable housing? For you, is that the right question? Uh, for me and for the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative, it's absolutely the last question you mm. ask on the arc of uh, remediating what we find in our urban cities right now. Um, the 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 question of prioritizing how do we build more first really leaves the space open for um, profit-seeking, predatory development, um, crony processes of, of receiving entitlements and tax breaks and access to land. Um, and it also disappears um, that the housing crisis, as it's understood now, is less a question of where do we get more houses and more a question of how do we distribute what we have currently? Hmm. How do we distribute current empty housing? How do we distribute current empty lots? How do we distribute capital 
uh, to build housing that, as many commercial developers say, pencils out. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you prioritize building first, you disappear that there are a lot of structural issues that could easily be repaired to make the building question more impactful to hmm. the 50% of Oaklanders who are rent burdened. That is more than 50% of their income going toward rent. So where do you start then? What's the first question you start asking about how, you know, the area in West Oakland where you're working right now, and, and I guess you're working across the, the East Bay more generally. Mm-hmm. Um, where, yeah, what's the first question you start asking about projects then? Uh, the first question we ask about projects is what is the need? And is there a body of people, community leaders, uh, visioners who are ready to co-lead on the acquisition of land or housing? Another way to approach it is what is the need in the neighborhood? Where are the underused and underleveraged cultural assets? And what are the elements one could and should put in a particular neighborhood or location that would support the reactivation of economic activity, communal activity, um, and link that community into support from our local municipality? You know, I think I first um, heard about your work when uh, East Bay Permanent Real Estate Collective purchased Esther's Orbit Room, which had been a legendary social gathering space, you know, run by a woman named Esther Mabry going way back. And what I loved about it was there was, there's an oral history Mm -hmm. with her that's like, it's at the African-American Museum uh, and Library in in Oakland, where she talks about Esther's Orbit Room, not just as like a, a bar, and lots of people remember 7th Street in Oakland as like a fun place, but as this hub of black economic life. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, I have begun to think about Esther as um, one of our um, mid-century black philanthropists. She um, did things like had a uh, a college fund for C students. She recognized that A and B students really did receive a lot of rep- support and it's the C students and if you want to make it analogous to West Oakland it's the struggling communities that are least supported Um, and up until 2010 meaning for over 60 years Esther's held a cultural space and economic space on the corridor Uh, every person to the person has a story about the ways that the Esther space the historic space next door the barn and the gallery on the other side supported a family member with employment supported a family member with nutrition supported a family member with connection with the community and it's really one of the last visible assets you can find on the West Oakland Corridor demonstrative of that spirit of community and transformation built into um, the economic activities that took place in the area. Um, you might have guessed that uh, Noni is a third generation West Oaklander, <laughs> so knows a lot of this history. So you've, Esther's closes, you know, uh, Esther maybe dies, it mm-hmm. closes, and the door's just kind of shut. That's so how do you go raise the money and how do you all raise money to do something like this when, you know, clearly for uh, some other commercial enterprise, it wasn't penciling out, as you said, because it stayed closed. Right. Well, 
you know, when East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative launched in December 2018, um, from our activist community, there was a lot of hope and optimism. However, from um, the lender community, um, even the Mission Line lender community, there was a lot of um, polite reception of our vision for um, community finance, community controlled land and housing. Um, but many of them um, um, really behaved in the way that you can very much expect in this nonprofit capital field with a polite pat on the head, uh, telling us our idea was great and they would love to hear more about it. Um, in the capital field, that's the equivalent of a no, no. thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so our, our theory out of the gate is that um, instead of, of, of creating this sort of one-to-one fiction of a dollar to value, that we would attempt to um, subvert that sense that um, one commodity object stands in for credit for another commodity object. And instead looked at critical mass of our community, of our community leaders, our vision for our future as the um, guarantor of the capital that we brought in. Um, and as we built a community base of folks who put in $1,000, a grandmother, an aunt, a cousin, a local organization, to model what a seed looks like that would then position us for larger non-extractive capital nonetheless, uh, we got to that point and could see that the Mission Line lenders were still not willing to be first money in. Hmm. Who was first money in was Katali Foundation that has um, gathered up a large pot of divestment capital meant to offer um, a different non-extractive, less hierarchically positioned pathway for community-led projects to strengthen themselves financially and launch economic um, schemes that supported more than just profit-seeking developers um, and folks who were already on the inside of the capital pot. Hmm. So we began by telling a story of Esther's Orbit Room and the ways that Esther's held um, space on a corridor that supported over 250,000 black folks all the way up to about 1975 um, as you see the the pace of um, Department of Transportation removals accelerate um, the ways that redevelopment dollars were withdrawn but particularly withdrawn from black and brown and underserved areas and so we looked at it as a story that had a possibility to reignite a corridor that was once known as the downtown the black downtown of Oakland mm -hmm. so through telling that story and reactivating folks hope for what we could do in our city, it really created a critical mass. And then after the first money in from Katali, other mission aligned funders were uh, miraculously able to see the vision as well. And it sort of became kind of a, <clears throat> a feedback a loop process of activating a body of community members, activating a mission aligned lender, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth, until we were able to create a critical mass of capital that allowed us to both close on the property and plan for about $4 million in rehabilitation 
and also it has become the uh, launch pad for a full corridor revitalization project of the western part of the corridor from Wood Street to Brush Street, where we're now investigating similar underserved, um, neglected assets for the ways that we might activate both a story and a vision from within the base living at and around the 7th Street corridor. If you're thinking about, um, if you're out there and you're not as familiar with the geography here, the 7th Street corridor that Noni's talking about is basically like if you leave the BART station and you move into the port. It's that kind of part of, uh, it's actually right <laughs> right down below you is where 7th Street was. Um, I, you know, how many properties have you been able to acquire in this way? Basically taking community funds and people buying like shares in this company and then going out and, and going to these mission line lenders. Uh, we've been alive um, and open for public membership for five years. We have closed on six properties. Mm-hmm. Uh uh, one mixed-use commercial and residential, another commercial, and the other four residential. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How much do you, like, how, how broadly could this model extend? This model is it's extending. It is in the process of extension across many states. Um, they're, they're, our model is meant to be stolen in whole or in part. <laughs> you can think of us as the Banksy of cooperative <laughs> real estate. <laughs> so we try to make um, all of our failures and our successes um, transparent and open source available to those who need it. So we do peer learning sessions across the nation. We do foundation work to um, help foundations model the way to deploy non-extractive and reparative capital differently. And there are now officially two um, PRECs proper, uh, permanent real estate cooperatives, one in Massachusetts and the other I cannot recall the location. And there are several projects that have taken our model in whole or in part, one in Quebec, um, some in L.A. Uh, We just came from a national capital uh, convening with folks like Boston Ujima, who are also moving reparative capital and reparative Mm -hmm. projects. So this this is a scaling model. Mm -hmm. The limitation is the um, due diligence process, uh, the rubrics that are collectively agreed upon among community capital strategists, Mm. as well as reparative and non-extractive capital. That is capital that is not tied in with um, extractive interest rates, et cetera. We are talking about novel approaches to addressing our housing and urban crisis. Joined by Noni Session, co-founder, executive director of the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're exploring a couple of novel approaches to addressing our urban and housing crises here. They both reframe the way we're thinking about land. The In the first session, uh, we talked with Noni Session, who's the co-founder and executive director of the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative. Uh, currently have six properties uh, in the East Bay now, including um, Esther's Orbit Room, if you've seen that from the from BART window. Um, we want to introduce Lars Doucette, who's the author of a book with an amazing title, Land is a Big Deal. <laughs> the subtitle is Why Rent is Too High, Wages Too Low, and What We Can Do About It. Welcome to the show, Lars. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so so happy to have you. I also just want to say as we transition into this part of the show where we're going to talk about this land value tax, I want to note that this show was inspired by Kenichi on the Discord. This was uh, his idea of bouncing off of a big New York Times story about land value taxes and, and what it is they can do. Um, so, Lars, uh, you know, in my prep for the show, I was just noticing that the way that you and Noni both talk about things is is different, and it's this this kind of change in the language from property and real estate to talking a lot about land. And of course, your book is literally called Land is a Big Deal. Why, why is that? What's why, why talk about it in this way? Well, for one, I want to point out that I think if you look at a lot of the things Noni has written, she's constantly, you know, pointing out the importance of land. And I think this is something that a lot of people realize without realizing that they realize it, you know, mm-hmm. um, and the I'm one of those guys that likes to just exactly what it says on the tin. The the thesis of the book is that right there. (laughs) Land is the world's biggest asset class. This is something people don't realize. Um, About if you look up all the real assets in the world, if you take all the money in the world and forget about all the financial paper moving around, point to the actual molecules that it's pointing (laughs) to, like two thirds of real assets is just real estate. Hmm. And um, about half the value of real estate is land. So land is a third of all the real physical value in the world. And one of the interesting things is as society advances, land keeps getting more valuable. Hmm. And um, what's interesting is that our existing economic systems are really impoverished when we try to talk about this, because what are the two dominant economic modes of thought? Capitalism and socialism. And capitalism and socialism are both they only think of two nouns, capital and labor. And both of these systems think land is just another kind of capital. But the big classic thing about land is you can't make any more of it. And if you ever talk to a real estate agent, like all their little like quotes and sayings, just give this away, like buy land. It's the only thing they're not making any more of. (laughs) Or, Or what are the three most important rules of real estate? Location, location, location. Like they give it right away. And um, and yet our economic systems like don't really understand how important it is. If you think about it, you cannot do anything without access to land. Mm. You cannot eat, sleep, work, or even poop without access to land. I mean, try and do any of those things on yeah. land you're not authorized to do it on, and you will immediately get in trouble or arrested, or in <laughs> some cases, like some mm-hmm. parts of the world killed. You know, and so you have to pay a premium to exist on Earth at any moment. And this underpins everything about our economic system. In many ways, a lot of the um, systems that were set up, you know, under feudalism are still very much with us today. And that's my basic point is that land is way more important than anyone gives it credit for. Um, And you've done a a series of essays about this, calculating different things and and showing um, 
show, showing the importance of land. And it began with a San Franciscan um, named Henry George. And, you know, with producer Judy Campbell and I were talking about why George is such a provocative figure. And it's kind of this basic question of his work, which is, why do rich cities create poverty instead of solving it, which feels so relevant in the Bay Area right now. Um, talk to me how you about how you came to Henry George and, and what his basic uh, philosophy was. Well, it's really interesting. You know, there's this haunting quote at the end of the first part of his seminal book, Progress and Poverty, where he points out, just to like pull out that thread you just mentioned, mm -hmm. that at, he was a San Franciscan. And at the time, San Francisco was a frontier city. So there was opportunity there, but there wasn't a lot of wealth. There wasn't much infrastructure. You know, it was not a rich city at the time. And yet there was not the grinding poverty in 1879 in San Francisco that there definitely was in New York. And he thought this was the this paradox, the paradox of progress and poverty, that really deep poverty can only exist alongside tremendous progress. And he has this haunting prophecy, 1879, remember, if there is less deep poverty in San Francisco now than in New York, is it not because San Francisco is yet behind New York and all that both cities are striving for? When San Francisco reaches the point where New York now is, who can doubt that there will also be ragged and barefooted children on her streets. Mm. And that's exactly where we are now. Mm. And the reason for this that he says is that um, because as progress advances, basically private landlords gatekeep access to that progress. Um, and because of that, you need to pay, like you want to move to New York, you want to move to San Francisco because you can make higher incomes there. But your landlord knows that and so can increase your rent, not because they've provided any more services, but because they control this land monopoly. There's only so much land. Mm -hmm. There's only so much location. And so whenever someone um, proposes a solution to the housing crisis that everyone should just move to, you know, some unpopulated state. Well, the reason people are wanting to move to these cities is that's where the jobs are. Right. And that's where the services are. And what's funny is that a bunch of people did move to unpopulated states. And guess what? The rents all went up. <laughs> right, exactly. Now, every single person you talk to in any city along the West Coast or like, uh, you know, in the West generally is like, oh, man, the rents are all up. You know, this all this stuff has happened. So what was what was Henry George's sort of solution to this, you know, what felt like a, a really structural problem? Right. Well, his solution is interesting. So Noni is got this. um um, she can correct me if I'm I'm reading her wrong, but a, a real estate cooperative, um, mm -hmm. similar term I'm familiar with is a community land trust, where basically the, the people go out and directly buy the land and, and hold it in common. Mm -hmm. um, that's um, right, that's right? No, no, correct. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Just making sure I understand you correctly. LVT, land value tax, is a way at arriving at a similar effect through other means. Basically, what if everyone is society's landlord instead of just the people who got there first, Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and the way that is, is that um, the, if you think about it, what is a landlord charging for? They're charging for two things. They're charging for access to the land, which they did not create, and the value of which is created by the community. You're paying for being in San Francisco, which is value created by everybody in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And then they're also charged. So they're charging for the land, but they're also charging for the value of the building, maintenance of the building. Like you're renting a building and you're renting a location. Um and the Georgia's position, land value taxes, what if we recapture the portion of rent that is due to the land? And then that goes to society, right? <laughs> then the question is, what do you do with this? You pay for public services, you 
use it to run the city. Um, you, there's been proposals. This is one of the, where the earliest proposal for universal basic income comes from. <laughs> In Georgia's time, it was called the citizen's dividend. The idea is that, you know, we're all society's landlord. That should be all our money. We created that value, so it should be shared equally. Um, and so the idea is that this solves a lot of problems that are caused by the inequities of private um, um, landlordism. And I can get into those, but I'll Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it seems like then one of the key next steps is, right, is it possible to kind of separate out the land value from the improvements or the, the, the buildings that are on top of it, right? Yes. And the answer is yes. Um, and the way I know this is because I've, I've done it. That's actually, that's, actually <laughs> that's a good day. way to know something. Yeah. It's, it's my day job now, you know, and before it was my day job, this is a recent um, venture for me, is before that, um, before that, I, I wrote this series of articles on Georgism because I was exploring it. And I wanted to see what all the best objections were. You know, one of them was that land isn't a big deal. Well, clearly it is. Another one was that LV land value tax will be passed on to tenants and will make everything more expensive. I checked that out and empirically that's not true. But the best objection was you can't like, how do you separate land value from the rents? And the answer is that there's all these ways to do it. But I'll, I'll give you a really salient example. In San Francisco, um, you know, in my article, I found two side-by-side townhomes, like townhome lots rather. Mm -hmm. Two empty lots, same zoning, same location. One was selling for $2 million. And this is about like a 2000 square foot lot, mm -hmm. you know, 2300 square foot lot, something like that. And the other one was selling for like 2 million point three. And that one had a building on it and the 2 million one didn't. And so like, that's like the simplest, easiest case. <laughs> right. You just subtract yeah. out, right. right. Yeah. Uh, 2.3 minus two. Okay. The building was worth 300,000. Right, right, right. The and there's like more fancy computer models that can do it. I mean, a lot of these also rely on this thing called the cost approach where you you know, it's kind of like Kelly Blue Book, but for buildings and you apply depreciation and there's fancier models than that. But the bottom line is when land gets so valuable that it absolutely dwarfs the values of buildings, which is the case in places like San Francisco, it becomes easier and easier because you can just see that you're clearly paying mostly for the value of dirt hmm. rather than the value of the building. So here's the next uh, question as we kind of walk down this path. Why? One of the arguments that I've heard from land uh, value tax folks is that it would kind of incentivize housing production and and density. Like it would it would change the way that cities actually develop in a kind of in an organic way. Right. So yes, and that is certainly the case. And um, and, I, and I do think I should address some of Noni's points about developers because I think she had some salient points with regards to corruption and you know getting handouts from city hall where you know oh I get upzoning permission but you don't <laughs> right um, yeah. and things like that. But what it does is that LVT flips the city's incentives. Right now, you know, cities are constantly issuing bonds and getting in debt and going broke. You know, what what is the city really providing? It's providing services. And when it provides services, the value of those services is captured by private entities, hmm. right? Um, notice that, like, no one can ever build trains in America. Um, the way they finance it in Asia is whenever they lay a mile of track, um, the, the, the transit authority owns the adjacent land. And so, hey, I just put some railroad down. That makes that adjacent land valuable. We're going to lease that out, not sell it, but lease it out to shops and stuff so that the track pays for itself. <laughs> and um, it not only incentivizes development, it, it punishes speculators who hold really prime land out of use. 
Um, it also avoids the problem because of, they're paying that land value tax regardless of right. whether they've done something with the building, right? This is like right. one of yeah. I, I want to just uh, you know dial it on this for one second because this is one of like the big problems uh, in in West Oakland, Noni. It's like if you look out across. West Oakland right now, you see that there's all of these empty lots. Some of that has to do with pollution. Some of that has to do with, with other things. But there's there clearly isn't like an incentive for these uh, for those for those lots to be developed. That's why there's a bunch of empty lots there, right? Yeah, actually, there are about four thousand vacant lots um, in Oakland, and um, there isn't a lot of incentive. But I would add even more so when we talk about um, dense, uh, um, um, incentivizing density, it it still create, it can recreate the same problem when you're actually not incentivizing dense use, which is not necessarily a terminology you see in the literature. Well, yeah, yeah. Explain, explain what you mean. Well, so um, I I think this this land value tax could be pretty powerful considering some of the pieces of land we're trying to buy right now um, away from commercial developers. But with or without that incentivization, what is actually needed at the ground level, if you will, is dense use. So when um, when profit seeking or commercial developers put up buildings, right? Mm-hmm. Two stories, 25 stories, whatever. They're designing um, for the second floor up. <clears throat> They're designing the commodity object to be subdivided and sold off to other people who live their full lives from the second floor up. Mm. What happens at the ground floor is that um, the community is still starved of resources as the ground floor costs the developer literally n- n- close to nothing. Uh, this, is, this is analogous to this um, hmm. uh, train track example, right? They're placing something on the land and it is increasing the value of the use of the land for um, future labor populations who will occupy these often market rate or luxury units. Then at the ground floor, they're holding space that cannot be used by grassroots or active community members unless they're able to pay the premium attached to the land through that second floor up usage. Uh, that's the... And what I what I think you're kind of um, explaining for me is, I, I don't know, I'm sure a lot of listeners have experienced this. You go into some new neighborhood that would be going through a process that we'd probably call gentrification, and there's like new uh, buildings everywhere. And there's all these people who are now living there, but there's almost nothing in the ground floor retail. And in fact, like, you know, you can walk through Oakland right now and, and you're like, wait, but all these people have moved in here and yet there's nothing going on on that, uh, on the, the retail level. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And then if those same um, plots of land were sold um, for uh, non-speculative rates, right? So we're talking a land value of $3 million that is accessible by the folks who live at and around a corridor that is inflated to the value of $15 million, for example, by way of created entitlements, hard money loans, um, penalties and debt, then immediately the, the incentivized speculation process 
also at the same time puts the land use directly out of reach of the folks who would actually use the land functionally to serve the community and serve the city. So if I can if I can uh, translate for myself here, it's that essentially if you give an entitlement to a piece of land that says you could build a really big building here, then it almost means you have to build a big building there because that's the only way you could make enough money to buy the land with that particular entitlement on it. Whereas if you didn't have that, then that land could be put to a broader variety of uses. Or I think in your model, right, it would be it would be that you could open it up for the community to say, these are the kinds of things we would like and are willing to back with our our capital, right? And maybe then you get, as you're saying, dense use, which is, I, I think is like lots of people moving through there, right? Lots of, lots of community members actually right. using that space. Because it's serving um, essential needs. Right now, what you get with commercial buildings is the the needs that the ground floor serves uh, are often something like a, um, a dilettante need, maybe a tea shop. I love tea as well. <laughs> but um, up until 1975, the 7th Street Corridor, you could find cobblers, tax accountants, restaurants. So this is not what you're going to find when the cost is $50 a square foot because of the way that the land value has been artificially inflated through disincentivizing uh, folks uh, moving this land and keeping it productive, right? Productive gets to be subbed in for anything that is revenue-based in the ground floor, as opposed to productive specifically meaning serves the people who live, work, and populate the street level of the Mm -hmm. place in which you build things. Mm -hmm. So, fascinating discussion we're having this morning, exploring a couple of novel approaches to addressing, you know, it's our housing crisis, but it's really addressing our urban crisis. It's addressing kind of the ways that we do development, the ways that we think about what land is. We're joined by Noni Session, co-founder and executive director of the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative, and Lars Doucette, who's the author of Land is a Big Deal, Why Rent is Too High, Wages Too Low, and What We Can Do About It. We want to hear from you. Some questions are already starting to come in uh, via social media and other means. What are your questions about cooperative real estate like no needs doing or a land value tax like Lars Doucette is is advocating for um, the position you might know as Georgism if you've uh, if you've seen it around you can give us a call the number is 866-733-6786 that's 866-733-6786 you can email us forum at kqed.org this show is inspired on our discord so go find us on our digital community go to kqed.org slash forum you can sign up there i'm alexis madrigal stay tuned support for forum comes from san francisco opera Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're joined this morning by Lars Doucette, author of Land is a Big Deal, Why Rent is Too High, Wages Too Low, and What We Can Do About It, as well as Noni Session, who's co-founder and executive director of the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative uh, based uh, out of Oakland. We're going to get to more of your calls and uh, comments here. The number is 866-733-6786. Just as we're kind of exploring this idea of different ways of, of doing real estate, different ways of doing, uh, uh, of thinking about land and how it works in our cities. Um, Lars, I know you have an answer to uh, one question from one of our listeners. Uh, Michael wrote in to say, it's so quaint to hear Georges in this day and age. <laughs> uh, George operated in a world before computers when the quantity and nature of land was the only thing that could be seen and measured and when intellectual property was almost insignificant. Um, I think, you know, Michael's point here would be that land is not as big a deal um, as as you think it is. And I know that you've kind of um, kind of asked been asked this and tried to answer this objection before. Yeah, well, first of all, George would consider intellectual property a kind of economic land, for one, because it's, um, especially if we're talking about patents Mm -hmm. on, um, you know, there's been a lot of cases in the software industry of people patenting absolutely fundamental things and then just charging rent to people for it. Um, I think there's a case, you know, I won't go into that whole thing. But, um, you know, um, land really is a big deal. Intellectual property is a big deal. But even so, I think there was a McKinsey report on this, actually. Um, IP products, intangibles, was only 4% of real assets Hmm. in the world. 68% was real estate. So IP seems big, um, but even still, it's not not nearly as big as it sounds. And when you look at things, you realize how important land is when you realize what it could possibly mean. For instance, Elon Musk is currently um, building a big old empire in space. And does the first person to get to space just get to park on all the satellite locations? Mm. You know, do they just get to own them forever? Does the first person to get to the moon or Mars just get to own it forever? And all economic possibilities that come after that. Mm. So I think as we advance more technology, we're going to find that land is an even bigger deal than we even imagined beforehand. And then all economic progress increases the current value of land. One of the things um, I think a lot of people think of is in George's time, you know, they're thinking of land as agricultural. And um, in my book, um, I have these graphs which show all of the value that used to be in agricultural land has now shifted entirely to urban land Mm. because it's gone from how big of a farming empire can you make to whatever you're doing in the city, whatever is valuable, all that value spills into the land. And that then gets captured by private landlords. And so even a, a lot of it, right, in, in your work has shown it's been like residential. It's it's residential. Housing. It's housing, right? That's that's how people make uh, financial empires. Um, exactly. uh, Noni, question for you uh, that maybe listeners might have, because I think that you have developed um, it, like a you mean something very specifically by this. What does Noni mean by extractive as in, in extractive capital? Well... <clears throat> When you are looking to buy land, own land, or um, build on a building, there's a cost of money. 
There's a cost of capital. And sometimes we call that an interest rate. Sometimes there are other kinds of fees that it costs for someone to give you a large sum of their credits in order to transfer that into your builders or your purchase process. If we're talking about, if you will, repatriating land back to the communities in which you find it, if we're using repatriate to, um, to reflect ownership, in order for that to be possible, a lot of the artificial uh, inflation of value around the land itself, but also the money associated with the cycle of owning, buying, and selling land has to be pulled from the process in order as, as, a, as a reparative act in terms of who has access to capital itself, right? So, for example, um, folks who invest in the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative, they invest at a very minimal rate of 1.5% projected return. That's about what you get from your retail bank account. But what it does is it allows um, organizations like ours to then bring this these commercial spaces, these residential spaces, these open park spaces to the market, if you will, for less than 50 percent of market rate. Right. And so then what that means is, is that let's say the folks who then rent, lease or co-own the commercial spaces with you, instead of spending the next five years of their small business life struggling to service debt, they spend the next five years of their small business life uh, grounding their business into the landscape and serving the community. It means for residential housing that fo folks, instead of spending the next 30 years of their life struggling to pay an ever increasing a rent, they have a radically affordable rental rate, which then clears up psychic and practice space to make interventions on their community, to make interventions on our city municipality. So non-extractive capital is the capital that frees typically underserved communities from the consequences of heavy debt in this in this Western market. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> you know, people might be uh, wondering so how you developed um, this perspective a little bit, Noni, and I just wanted to like, you're, you know, when you read your bio, you're like, you have like a PhD from Cornell. You did a bunch ABD, of- ABD, ABD. Oh, AB, yeah, 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 <laughs> ABD, sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm like, so I'm fascinated. So how, how did you go from doing this work in, you know, cultural anthropology into this kind of like applied space of like thinking about these, these issues? Yeah, it was it was accidental, but in hindsight, it feels very natural. Um, my work is with international humanitarian communities installed into the African urban space. So I looked at um, uh, um, United Nations expatriate communities and their processes of cultural production through their expert and bureaucratic subjectivities. And when you look at the outcome of that cultural milieu, you also see deformed um, national sovereignties. You see extractive development, international development project structures. And you see the failures of governance that is then often projected onto, say, for example, something like um, the African kleptocracy without taking account of the really extractive and damaging bureaucratic practices that we take as natural and objective. Mm. 
when I returned home to finish writing my dissertation, I looked around my city and saw this kind of nightmare landscape. Like, I, I don't know if we have readers of the right age, but we, we have sh- we have true Hoovervilles happening mm-hmm. across the United States right yeah. now. And I was just so shocked and baffled by it. It ended up, uh, we founded a civic action network called Sobo State of Black Oakland. Um, and then I ran for District 3 City Council, my 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 NATO district, and knocking on doors and talking to our city leaders and asking them questions like, hey, bud, why does my city look the way it looks? And many of the responses from our leaders were really, <laughs> really scapegoat phrases such as, oh, well, we can't do anything about the the uh, market. We have no control over that. Mm -hmm. And so what became clear to myself and many folks who are in the cooperative movement and in the the capital access movement is that then the role we need to play as folks who move our cities in a direction um, that is not the dystopic future is we have to contest with the market. We have to position ourselves as market actors since those are the folks that municipalities listen to. And so this accidental real estate development came from a sense that both internationally and nationally, we can see the same kinds of deforming dynamics and flows. And the only way to, uh, as we see it, one of the important ways to subvert those dynamics is to insert yourself into the process as a change maker. Mm. So interesting. Um, uh, just to your to your earlier point, Noni, Sean writes, I live in Hunter's Point. All the new units, some 500 plus, built on the old shipyard have zero space for retail. The developer, Lennar, would rather leave the space empty than bring even a coffee shop or a mini mart, thousands of new people, and uh, not a loaf of bread uh, between them. <laughs> um, let's go to the phones. Uh, Paul in San Francisco, welcome. Yes, uh, with an increase in land value, I would think there might be an increase in taxes. So would a speculator uh, in San Francisco uh, demolish a single-family unit that is not under direct control, buy it not under direct control, and replace it with re- uh, rental units that will not be under direct control and uh, therefore make it more expensive for uh, uh, people mm-hmm. to move because the prices will be high? Huh, Paul? This, this, uh, yeah, no, thank you. This is an interesting question. I mean, Lars, I'm gonna, I'm gonna extend it a teensy bit from what Paul was saying about about rent control because I know that you've done some research on this. Of like, if you increase the taxes in this way, in this land value tax, do you essentially open things up for landlords to just you know kind of pass? This this tax on in some way, and is there, re- there it, what is the research show on that question? Right. So there's a couple of mechanisms we're talking about here. So he's talking about redevelopment leading to obliterating rent controls and things like that, which is an intersection of specific policy things. Um, but let's talk to the. I'll I'll answer both questions. Um, first to like address the whole like rent control issue. That's a policy issue. You can just mandate that if you tear down a rent controlled property for um, 50 unit power or whatever, you got to put as many rent controlled units in there as there were to start with, plus whatever additional stuff you're making. Like that can just be a policy decision that's completely, you know, parallel to whatever you're doing with taxes. Um, But to go back to the tax, so that's not a necessary consequence of a tax change, but to talk about, um, that the tax change um, thing is that um, um, can 
land value taxes be passed on to tenants. So this was the second big objection that I wanted to talk about in my book and my articles was a lot of people, you know, hear the word tax and they're like, well, I know how taxes work. You tax cigarettes, cigarettes get more expensive. You tax gas, gas gets more expensive. You tax, you know, this, you tax that. You, if you tax something, you get less of it. Land value tax is really interesting and it's special. Um, pretty much all economists agree that land value tax is the only tax that doesn't get passed on to the consumer. The landlord really and truly does have to eat it. And this is not just a theoretical um, um, uh, assumption. It's actually borne out by the evidence. And I go over the evidence in my book where you see a bunch of places that have had partial um, land value taxes in different directions, like or even like land value subsidies in the opposite direction. Hmm. And you can see that um, the land value tax is capitalized into the selling price of the land, right? And that means that um, the more you tax the land, the cheaper it gets to sell. And the value of land is how much you can charge in rent. You know, if land value tax could be passed on to tenants, if it could be passed on, that would mean take two houses, two landlords. One has a mortgage, one doesn't. So one has to pay mortgage interest. So he has he has higher expenses than the other, but they're charging the same rent because rent is determined by the most they can get from the market, not based on some cost plus system. And so um, both the theory and the evidence really shows hmm. that land value tax isn't passed on to tenants. It is legitimately borne by the landlord who has to eat it. And, um, you know, so it's, it's, it's a way to, to help tenants with rent. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think... Um... Noni, maybe you can address this. This is like one of the interesting things about the the situation that we find ourselves in here um, is that people who own property don't want property values to go down. Um, so how do you think about what you're doing when it comes to people who own real? Because I think, you know, I think you own your, your family house um, in Oakland. I mean, in a in a perfect world prices would come down and more people could buy but somehow no one would no one would get hurt so how how do you think about that how do you think about the relationship between you know a market where people want property values to go up and the work you're doing where you're kind of trying to drive property values down in some yeah. sense i mean thanks for asking about my house um it it's related to a i think um a erroneously placing value around unlimited growth in this market, right? Because uh, my house is a great example that um, my uncle transferred that house to me. And upon reassessment, mm -hmm. my taxes, my yearly taxes are now about $15,000, mm -hmm. right? Mm hmm um, and uh, when the transfer was undertaken, a lot of folks warned me to get the right assessor because assessors are known for under assessing black homes in black neighborhoods. Interestingly, I was hoping for that outcome. Right. If you intend never to resell the land. Right. If you intend to hold the land in mm -hmm. perpetuity for some trust, a family trust, a community trust. And I'm using trust very loosely yeah, in the sure. sense of its function as opposed to its legal definition. Right. Why would assessing the land at um, one point three million dollars with the taxes attached to it mm -hmm. be more conducive to community stability? Then um, so now we can move to 7th Street as an example. 
why would assessing land a, a 2,000 square foot lot at $3 million be more conducive to community security than assessing a 2,000 square foot lot at its actual land value, which is more like 8 to $1.5 million? Because in the meantime, what we're looking at on 7th Street for a lot that size is a liquor store covered with trash and dirt and waste and feces because the owner of the land is sitting on the land until someone is willing to pay this artificially inflated $3 million for a land transfer. She's speculating on how tall a building one could build there, while the rest of us have to step over this poor man we're trying to get support for. Um, when, in fact, we could take that property off of the market and build a smaller market, uh, a tax accountant's office, a cobbler's office, and then create a, a turnover of the dollar that would last for 30 days instead of one hour, which is what you see often in neighborhoods that are underserved with essential mm-hmm. services. So interesting. We um, have a few uh, other comments that I just wanted to to get to here. You know, one listener writes, you know, I've been very impressed with the way that cities in Australia, such as Melbourne and Sydney, are able to have diverse and abundant retail in the lower levels of office spaces. I wish San Francisco could do that. You know, you see it all over the world and that many places are able to do this. And in the in the U.S., there's clearly something that's that's wrong with the system. And I think these are the kinds of things that we've we've been talking about. Randy writes, you know, what about requiring local ownership? Just another another idea. If people were required to live on the land that they own, that eliminate a lot of speculation from external forces. I've often wondered if we shouldn't present uh, prevent ownership of residential property by people from foreign countries. Uh, we've had laws on like that on the books at certain times, uh, not always to good effect. And Noel, uh, on Discord writes, the real estate industry has been pretty good at drowning out any discussions like this one so much that we aren't even aware mm-hmm. uh, of a lot of alternatives. Absolutely. Um, so bravo for having the show. Well, hey, thanks, Noel. Um, we have been talking about innovative approaches to addressing our housing crisis. Uh, Lars Doucette is the author of Land is a Big Deal, Why Rent is Too High, Wages Too Low, and What We Can Do About It. And even if you don't go to the book, Lars, you have a website too, landisabigdeal.com, I think, right? Yep, yeah, I think we're good. Yeah, so go, go check that out. That is the yeah. uh, that is the site, and it has kind of the, the core explanations here of, of all the stuff we've been talking about. Um, Noni Session, co-founder and executive director of the East Bay Permanent real estate cooperative you can also go check out uh what they do on their website incredibly open organization you can see some of your meetings even (laughs) (laughs) right there right there on the thing um i am alexis madrigal this is forum stay tuned for another hour of forum ahead with guest host leslie mcclurg Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.